0: have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, as we continue our study through Luke together. We're in Luke 22, and this morning we'll actually just look at a few verses here, kind of this next little account is kind of just a short section, verse 31 down through verse 34, and we only get this little account here in in Luke's Gospel, and if you do need a Bible, forgive me for forgetting to mention we do have a couple there in the aisles if you want to follow along with us the guys can pass one over if you lift your hand up but Luke's the only one who gives us this account so uh, just want to take some time to really draw from it what the spirit of God would have us to benefit from because the other gospel writers don't record for us this little interaction that takes place between Jesus and Peter in regards to the Lord uh, speaking to him about Satan's effort Uh, to want to sift and really work over the disciples. So we'll, we'll really spend the majority of our time kind of meditating and drawing what we can from verse 31 and 32. But if you turn your attention with me there to verse 31, let me read verse 31 through 34 and we'll pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Luke 22, beginning in verse 31, tells us that the Lord said, Simon, Simon... Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And Father, we ask as we open the Word of God this morning that you, by the help of your Holy Spirit, would just prepare each and every one of us. And Lord, you know what that means for me and for each and every person sitting here among us this morning. And Lord, you know us and you know our need. And so we ask that you'd prepare us, Lord, physically, mentally, emotionally, most important, spiritually, Lord, to be able to have an ear to hear what your spirit would want to say to this part of your church through this portion of your word, which you've given to us to speak personally and powerfully into each one of our lives. So, Lord, would you prepare us? And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that we wouldn't again hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but we want to experience that demonstration of your Spirit and your power, speaking personally to each one of our hearts. So teach us, Lord. We want to hear you say something to us, and we invite you to do that now. Bless your word as it goes forth into our hearts this morning. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You know, there is no mistake that you have made in your life or any series of failures, no matter how grievous that mistake may have been, and no matter potentially how grievous even that series of failures may have been, that Jesus is shocked by it. And it's so important that you know that this morning. Whether you are already a Christian or whether you're not yet a born-again Christian and you're still considering the claims of Jesus and whether you want to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord, it is essential that you know, and don't you ever let the devil convince you of anything different, that there is no mistake you've made in your entire life. There is no series of failures, no matter how grievous That Jesus is shocked by. In fact, let me tell you this, the truth of the matter is Jesus anticipates human failure. Jesus anticipates human failure. Recognizing our humanity. Now, I'm not saying by any means that Jesus desires us to fail. I'm not saying by any means that God's intention is that we do sin, nor does God ignore our failures, and nor does Jesus just ignore our sins when those things happen. That's not what I'm saying at all. However, I tell you this, Jesus is not shocked by it. He's not surprised by it. We're surprised by it, we're shocked by it, because many times I think we just have a much higher estimation of ourselves than really we should. Uh, Psalm 103 says that God remembers our frame that we are dust, uh, that we're basically weak, frail human beings. Uh, the problem is a lot of time I don't remember my frame and you don't remember that your frame is is just dust and that we're weak human beings. But the Lord is never shocked by it. In fact, we need to always remember in relation to sin, failure, major mistakes, horrendous personal blunders that we all make. We need to remember that when Jesus Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago and died upon the cross, suffering for the payment of our sins, not one of us breathing right now this morning was even born yet. In a sense, Jesus is way more familiar with your sins and my mistakes than we are. Because when he died 2,000 years ago upon the cross, you didn't even start Your process of sinning and failing and making the mistakes that we all do. Jesus, when he died on the cross, once for all for the sins of the whole world, was already dying for every one of your sins, past, presently, that you're struggling with right now. And even the mistakes you're going to make tomorrow and next week and and next month, should the Lord tarry. So in a sense, he's more familiar with your sin than you are. Uh, Therefore, he's not surprised by it. He's not shocked by it in any way. He knows us intimately. Jesus is continually aware of your personal condition. Jesus is always aware of kind of the condition and place where I'm at personally in my life. And Jesus is fully aware to a much higher degree than we are even of all the spiritual forces of evil that are constantly pressuring against us to try and get us to stumble and to fail and to make the mistakes that we often do. And I think this conversation between Jesus and Peter very clearly reveals those things. Again, Luke is the only one who gives to us this record of this warning that Jesus spoke to Peter in relation to Satan's sort of targeting the disciples and having them in his scope about to bring an attack against them. And I think there's a great lesson for all of us in these things. Remember, our background is Jesus away from the crowds now. He's in the last night before his arrest, suffering, and crucifixion, alone with his disciples. They just celebrated the Passover meal. He's sharing intimate things with them, things of pertinence, just like maybe somebody on a deathbed would share the last few things with their loved one or a son or a daughter before they pass away. I mean, these are his last moments with his disciples. And he's sharing pertinent and personal things. And as he's with them alone, at some point, verse 31 tells us that the Lord then said these words, Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as weed. Simon, Simon. The repetition of a name always indicates the intention of trying to create alertness. You know, like, like getting a little kid's attention. You know, Robert... Robert, you know, try, try, the idea, and we see this in the Bible. There's multiple occasions where a name is repeatedly said, and the indication is making sure that I have your attention because what I'm about to say is very important. And it's at this point that Simon Peter, as we know him, of course, Jesus calls him that in a few moments, that Jesus now gives this sobering, and, and from my perspective, almost kind of scary warning of this planned spiritual attack that was about to take place. This satanic assault that was about to happen. And in so doing, Jesus reveals to Simon one of the most really primary forces seeking to cause human failure. And that is very simply this, Satan's tactics to destroy people's lives. And Jesus wants Simon, and for that matter, all the disciples, and you and I as well, to realize that there is a very primary force that is seeking in every way possible on this planet to cause and to create human failure, and that is satanic activity and tactics to destroy people. And as we look at this section of Scripture, I think there are some things even that we can glean and learn regarding this unseen enemy of every human soul on this planet, and that's Satan himself. The first thing, if you're a note-taker, you might want to just take notice of, and it's pretty obvious, but please take notice, that Jesus indicates the literal existence of Satan in his personage. Now, that may almost seem like, well, why would you even bother bringing that up, that Jesus speaks of the literal existence of the person of Satan? Because Jesus speaks of Satan firsthand. Jesus speaks of Satan's activity and what he is about to do. And I have seen, by my own observation, you probably have as well, that one of the greatest deceptions of Satan that exists in this world is to put into the minds of men and women on this planet doubts, and and disillusionment and kind of downplaying and for some people denying altogether that there really is a, a, a devil. I mean, yeah, there's probably powerful forces that exist, but much of humanity either downplays and some out and out just deny, if it's some goofy cartoon idea, that there really is a literal devil, that there really is a literal personage called Satan that is a fallen angelic being who is actually promoting evil, that there is a spiritual current, unseen, but a spiritual current that is directing the filthy things we see in media, the the distorted, horrible, violent, perverse activities that we see taking place behind the music industry and in school systems and in governments and in families and in people's lives, trying... To, as a strong current, pull people into the abyss and just destroy lives and ruin the moral climate on this planet. To me, I find it quite insightful. Think about God. The heart of God is what? God wants to reveal himself. That's the nature of God. God wants to reveal himself The greatest indication of that is Jesus. Jesus came to this planet being God in human flesh. You couldn't have found a better way for God to reveal himself. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was God in human flesh who came to live among us just like we are so that we could see exactly what God was like. So we don't have to have our ideas from our prior church experiences or things other people told us or we develop our own ideas about God sometimes. He's, he's this, he's some great big judge or policeman or, or he's kind of this, you know, he's, he's just a big man upstairs like he's some goofy grandpa figure. No, Jesus came as God to show us what he was like and he was real severe with hypocrites and he was real loving and tender with children and Jesus was real compassionate with people when they failed and they really blew it and Jesus demonstrated to us, he revealed to us what God is like. So the nature of God is to reveal himself. What do you think the nature of Satan is? To conceal himself. It's the exact opposite. God reveals himself because he wants people to respond to him and receive him and, and have a relationship with him. The effort of the devil is exactly the opposite. The devil tries to conceal himself and his existence. Why? Because Satan will thrive best in his efforts when he's underestimated, when he's ignored, when he's kind of downplayed and denied altogether. This enables him to freely conduct his activities of destruction in every way under the nose of everybody who gullibly walks around and just thinks, well, I mean, it's not like this and he can much more fruitfully accomplish his purposes. So Jesus, who created all the angelic host, Jesus, who created all things, as well as the entire Bible, declares the literal existence of Satan. That there is a literal personage, Satan, a literal individual called the devil. In fact, if you're a note-taker, again, passages like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, there show us the origin and the fall of Satan, who was, the Bible teaches us, a created angelic being by God. He was one of the original created angelic beings with great authority and responsibility and at some point became proud, became self-seeking, wanting to be like God, jealous, I believe, of the relationship between God and man because he saw man created in the image of God and he was jealous of the favor and the love that God put upon man, because it's interesting to me, Isaiah 14, he says, I will be like the Most High. Now, sometimes we think of that, that he, like, he wanted to be God, and, may, and maybe that's what he meant, I will be like the Most High, that he wanted the exaltation and glory of God, possible, but I also think it was his despisal and hatred of the fact that we were created in the image of God, and God created us in the image no, no. them. Why would you give such favor to them? And there was this desire to be like God, but also this despisal of humanity. And in some way, pride and, and self-seeking and sinfulness creeped into the heart of the devil, whereby this rebellion took place against the throne of God as he turned in his position. And because of that, God judged him and he fell from this high-ranking position that he had at one time as one of the created angelic beings. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 record how he is the adversary against God and he opposes God's plan for humanity. And it describes the fall of the devil. Listen to part of Ezekiel 28. It says, you were, referring to the devil, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And God says, And I cast you down to the ground. Revelation 12 verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So not only does the Bible tell us that Satan fell, but it indicates, it seems to be, that that one-third of the angelic host went with the devil in his rebellion, of which we now refer to as demonic spirits or unclean spirits, with Satan being the highest-ranking one among them leading this demonic realm against the things of God. So Satan... His literal existence. He's revealed in seven of the Old Testament books and every single New Testament writer mentions the existence of Satan himself. As well as, most importantly, Jesus who created all things mentions his literal existence here. And it is critical. Why do you harp on this? It is critical that people understand the literal existence of a real devil. It really is. You know, it has been said before, nobody prepares for a battle that they are not aware that they are in. And nobody wins a battle that they don't prepare for. And it's important that we realize we are. there is a literal battle, a spiritual battle on this planet. And we must be prepared. And one of the best ways we can prepare herself is to realize the presence, the power, the plans and activity of the devil are just as real as the ground under your feet that you are standing upon. That he exists and he has evil intentions. And that's what Jesus points out secondly here, notice with me, in verse 31. He not only speaks of the devil's existence, but he he also speaks of his intentions and his activities. He tells Simon Peter here, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. So what are the devil's intentions? Well, Jesus says here that Satan is seeking for what? Access into people's lives. For what reason? For the purpose of basically putting people through like a painful grinding process. Interesting, when you look at the language here in the text, in verse 31, where Jesus says, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, that term you in verse 31 is actually in the plural form, indicating J.B. Phillips, a uh, Greek New Testament scholar, says that this could be better translated, Simon, Simon, do you not know that Satan has asked to have you all? To sift like wheat. In other words, Jesus' statement, the word you in verse thirty one, was a plural declaration, not just that Satan was only targeting Peter, he was, and we know that Peter ultimately fails and has quite a blunder. But but he's indicating to Simon, look, Satan has asked for all of you. His agenda is the same for every one of you disciples, he's telling Peter, and he says that is to sift you like wheat. Now the sifting of wheat was basically a process whereby wheat was subjected to strong crushing forces of pressure put down upon it for the purpose to break it apart. So they would drag the, the sledge over the wheat and it experienced strong crushing pressure down upon it. And then another part of the sifting of wheat is it then would be put into a sieve and it would be vigorously shaken back and forth to try and ultimately separate that which was the the good portion from the chaff that was the worthless part that they wanted to separate it from. And Jesus says here, by way of kind of a metaphor or illusion, the idea is he's trying to give a metaphor of, of kind of being put through the mill, if you would, or we might say being really worked over by somebody. You know, you, you see somebody get just maybe jumped and beat up by five or six people. Man, that poor guy, he got worked over and just the, got the pulp beaten out of him. And that's the idea here, to just get worked. And he says, listen, this is what Satan wants to do. He wants to bring painful, crushing experiences into people's lives so they'll just fall apart at the seams. And he just wants to take a hold of people and just just vigorously shake every last thing out of them that he possibly can by way of bringing things against them, that this is his agenda to use painful processes to crush lives, to pull apart lives, to separate families, to destroy relationships, to just devastate and destroy people. And Peter knew this firsthand. In fact, later on, remember, Peter, years later, in hindsight, after experiencing some of the things that he did and some of his own personal failure, 1 Peter 5 8, Peter later writes these words. Listen to what he says to fellow Christians. 1 Peter 5 8, he says, Be sober. In other words, pay attention. Be awake. Be vigilant. Be careful. Here's why. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring, lying, seeking whom he may devour. Uh, look at the. Illustrated way, Peter talks about the devil. He says, our adversary of our soul, the devil, he paces around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to just devour. I want you to picture in your mind a ferocious lion just hungry, pacing back and forth. And if you've ever seen one of those you know, adventure shows on TV where Mr. Lion catches Mr whoever, you know, hyena or whatever he's chasing and, and, and see what a ferocious lion does when he gets a hold of his prey and how he just, he just devours the thing. You know, all the guys are going, yeah, cool, it grows, it grows. You know, it's this guy. But that's what the devil wants to do. The devil, like a roaring lion, is just pacing, and he's patient. Listen to me. He is patient. And if you ever had it, watched a cat, you know how they'll kind of, you know, if you're wiggling something they're getting ready to pounce on it, how they just kind of, they wait until just the right moment and then they pounce. That's exactly what the devil does in people's lives. He is patient. He will wait weeks and months and years and wait for just the right moment to ultimately, like a devil, like a, like a lion, just ferociously devour your life and destroy a person's life and this is what he does he's seeking Peter says to just devour lives Jesus speaking of Satan regarding his agenda said that he's a thief and Jesus said he only comes as a thief to rob to kill and to destroy this is what the devil's agenda is he wants to rob people of every good and wonderful thing God has for their life all the wonderful plans he wants to take a young person and he wants to rob them of their purity and their innocence. And he wants to just rob that from them by deception and lies and leading them into sexual immorality or getting them into lives where they just destroy themselves with drugs or... Out. He just wants to rob all the wonderful plans that God has for people's lives. He, he wants to steal from people what could have been a blessed life and a wonderful existence and he, and he wants to just d- destroy and devour and ruin things. This is what his agenda is. And it's so important to recognize that. Now, those being, things being said, though Satan is powerful, and this is what his agenda is, the wonderful thing to realize, and we have to remember this, is Satan does not have just free reign to do whatever he wishes on this earth. And that's comforting to know, because yes, we have an adversary, and he is ferocious and evil, and he has evil intentions, and we see his casualties all around us. On this planet and lives who are hurting. But nonetheless, Jesus indicates here he doesn't have free reign. The Lord has authority over Satan and Satan is always still subject to the sovereignty of God as the creator of all things. Do you notice here in verse 31 that Jesus specifically says Satan has asked. He's asked for you, indicating that he realizes that everything that he Conducts on this planet, it is still under the sovereign rule of God, superintending and controlling all things on this planet. That he doesn't just have free access to do whatever he wants, and it seems that he kind of sized up the disciples and realized the potential that they had, and he targeted them, and therefore he pursued the throne of God, as we see him do in Job chapter 1. He pursued the throne of God and asked for access to bring difficulty and temptation and problems into the lives of these early disciples because he saw the potential that were in their lives. Again, you see the same truth revealed in Job chapter 1 where God is, in essence, he's bragging about Job. And, And it says that the devil appears before the throne of God and basically God says, look, I don't have anybody on earth like this guy. He fears me and he has integrity. And he's sincere and he loves me. And Job says, let me have access to his life. You really think he'll still trust you? Do you really think he'll still stand? And again, it's not easy for me to swallow, but the reality is God grants a measure of access for the devil to bring great trial and great difficulty into Job's life to test Job. And Job passed the test and God stands with him. But the wonderful thing to just realize is the devil had to ask I say that this morning to say this no matter what the devil seeks to do in my life in your life on this world we need to realize the devil is not equal with God he is in submission to God still and everything that happens and may come into my life or come into your life can only come through the filter of God's love and God's wisdom and God's superintending over all things and being in charge ultimately at the end of the day even as we see with Job and here with the disciples. And remember this, that God has an amazing way, does he not? He has an amazing way of taking things that are horrific and turning them around for good purposes. He is the master of doing this. In fact, think of sifting, as I mentioned it earlier. Sifting of wheat, sifting ultimately accomplished a separation process. It separated the, the wheat from the chaff, the, the worthless thing. And I find many a times that even when the devil attacks and brings about the things that he does that are painful and problematic in people's lives, that a lot of times God in his superintending over all things, he uses those things for a separation process. And sometimes he will use even the rotten things the devil does to remove from our lives or remove things from us that really weren't that great anyway. And he kind of sifts things out and ultimately we end up coming out on the other side like Job way better than we did on the front side heading into the thing because God superintends and he controls all things. And he sort of sifts things out and brings a healthy separation. Think about it. What was Peter's problem? What was Peter's problem? Well, Peter's problem you see in his reaction in verse 33. Look what Peter says when Jesus says he's going to fail. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. What's Peter's problem? He's got an extreme amount of self-confidence. Peter was overly self-confident and he felt a little bit superior in his attitude towards the other disciples. The other accounts tell us that Peter would say, Lord, they they might all fail you, (laughs) but not me. I'll go to prison with you. I will die with you. So part of Peter's problem as a man is he was overly self-confident. And he had a little too high of an estimation of himself. And through the sifting process, guess what the Lord did? As the devil came against Peter's life, the Lord did something beneficial in Peter's life and he purged him of that self-confidence. And he made Peter a little more compassionate and humble on the other side of his own failure and time when he crashed and burned. I think of unsafe people who don't know Jesus. Maybe it's how some of you came to the Lord. I know many people whose testimony in their life, they weren't a Christian. And some people, not all, some people, it seems they need to fail miserably. And they need their whole world to fall apart at the seams before they finally will let go of their pride and reach out to Jesus and let him save them and become the Lord and the one in control of their lives. And sometimes, unfortunately, people need everything to fall apart in their life to finally just give up their pride and humility, cry out to the Lord, and finally take the Lord's hand and receive him as Savior. And the Lord just has this wonderful way, I love, of turning things around, even though the devil brings great problematic things. I love the words of Joseph, who, remember, was severely mistreated by his brothers. They did horrible things to Joseph. His family did the most rotten things to the guy. And Joseph says in the latter portion of his life in Genesis 50 verse 20, to his own family members who did the horrible things to him, he says this, Genesis 50:20, he says, "You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive." Joseph was able to look in hindsight and say, you know what? Yeah, what you did to me, it was wrong. And it was evil. And you had evil intentions and it was hurtful. But he says, I have a loving Heavenly Father who's way bigger and who superintends and controls everything in my life. And he took the evil things you tried to do to me and he turned it around and he meant it for good because that's exactly what happened. Joseph got put in the right place for the right time to be in the right position to guess what? saved the entire Hebrew nation all because he went through some really horrible things. And listen, you need to be encouraged this morning. People may have done some really rotten things to you. People are going to do rotten things to you. But God has a way to take even the most evil things done to people and to turn them around and actually make it work out for your good in the end and make it have you in a place in your life where you're better off now because of the fact that you went through those things and God got involved and brought you to a better place as a result. And what a wonderful thing. Peter experienced this. Joseph, so many we see experiencing this. So Peter, be aware, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Verse 32, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail and when you return to me, Jesus says, strengthen your brethren now at this point Jesus seems to clearly zero in and to be speaking to Simon Peter personally and again a look below the surface now Jesus in verse 32 when he uses the word you he changes it back to the singular so we know he is talking specifically here to Simon Peter and he's assuring Peter listen I can assure you Peter Satan is going to really put you through the sifting process he is going to put you through the mill it's about to happen And Simon, you are going to go through some difficult times and you're going to have a major failure. But I love this. Jesus knowing what Simon was about to go through because God has providence, which means God sees ahead in life, even though we don't see ahead. Knowing what Peter was about to go through and even the major failure, he says, but you know what, Simon? He says, I've already been praying for you so that you will navigate your way through this process to the ultimate best outcome. Man, how incredible to think that Jesus said to him, knowing what's going to happen, I know what's going to happen, and so I've prayed for you. Man, there is nothing, I think, at times more comforting to know or more wonderful than at times when we're going through a really hard time. Or maybe when we just had a major failure to know somebody's praying for us. Especially if it's somebody that we feel like, hey, that person, they really have a connection to God. And man, when they say they're praying for me, oh man, that, that really means so much. Where after you fail or if maybe you're going through a really hard time, says, hey, I'm praying for you. And I know what the road ahead's going to be, and so I'm praying for you. Can you imagine what it was like to have Jesus say, I'm praying for you. Simon, Satan is going to sift you like wheat, bud. But I'm praying for you. I know it's about to happen. And I know every effect it's going to have in your life. And I'm praying for you. Man, there's nobody that would have more access and understanding for the will of God to help. And the wonderful thing is this. The Bible promises that same prayer ministry of Jesus that he promised to Simon Peter that day is still available and happening for every single one of us who's a believer in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is right there currently praying for you and I. 1 John chapter 2 tells us this. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us this. And Romans chapter 8 tells us this. Romans 8, verse 33 and 34 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And who is he who condemns? The devil and other people. But yet the Bible says, it is Christ who died, listen, and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. One of the ministries of Jesus, this very moment, is making intercession at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven for you and I. In the midst of our failures and our shortcomings and our struggles, praying over us. So, it just what an amazing thing to think of Him and the Father having conversation and the effect of that and the assurance to know that that's one of the ministries of Jesus for us. Notice as well what Jesus prayed for Peter specifically. He says, I've prayed for you, verse 32, specifically, that your faith should not fail. Jesus' prayer for Peter was not that Peter would not fail in his performance again. To me, that's interesting. Because the truth of the matter is that's not possible. Peter's a man, just like you and I. He failed once, and guess what? Until he breathed his last breath. He was going to fail other times. He was going to make other mistakes. So Jesus doesn't pray that he would never fail again. Peter, I'm going to pray that you never fail again. Well, that's not a reality. He doesn't pray that. Instead, he prayed that Peter's faith in him would not fail or waver, what? During the recovery process after his mistake. He did not pray for, and Jesus was not concerned with the perfection of Peter's performance. Jesus was concerned with the continuation of Peter's relationship with him during his failure. He didn't. He wasn't going, oh, I, I pray that your performance would just get perfected. Well, he died on the cross because none of us are perfect. Jesus' concern was for the continuation of relationship that your faith won't fail, Peter. I pray that your relationship with me by faith would continue strong during the process of you recovering from a major mistake that you're going to make in your life. Now, to me, this also shows exactly what Satan really targets, and Jesus knows that. What does Satan target? Satan's main target is to disrupt our relationship with God. That's Satan's primary target. You see that in Genesis chapter 3. As soon as Satan shows up in the Garden of Eden right away with Adam and Eve, the first thing he goes after is to try and disrupt the healthy relationship that exists between them and God. And he saw that they were in perfect harmony and love relationship with God and he starts trying to create questions in their mind about God and he's trying to disrupt their faith, their trust, their relationship with the Lord. See, Satan wants to plunge our lives into failure but I don't think that his primary desire is just to plunge our lives into sin and failure because he knows that sin is bad and it brings bad consequences in our life. I think that's a part of it. But I don't think his primary desire is to see people do sinful things because they're destructive. Satan knows that sin causes separation. It causes a barrier. And it causes a separation in relationship between man and his God. And so because of that, Satan comes against the Christian... And he comes against the Christian and he wants to get us to fail. He wants to get us to sin and tempt us to enter into sin and to deny the Lord to the point where we think at that time that we've denied the Lord so miserably, then we just feel so condemned to think, well, gosh, I mean, after what I've done, I mean, I just, and to get us in condemnation and a hopeless feeling where we draw back from our relationship with the Lord. So Satan wants to get somebody to backslide and become so hardened in their sin as they've walked away from the Lord for three weeks or three months or three years to where then they get to the spot where they think, well, I mean, I, I can't go back now. And he creates that doubt and that lack of faith in someone's mind whereby the Lord would gladly welcome them back if they would just repent and turn their... And Satan wants to create that doubt in people's mind. He wants to disrupt fellowship. So he assaults, ultimately, our faith in the Lord. Satan does the same thing with the unsaved person. He wants to get an unsaved person to deny the Lord and to live in sin so miserably to the point where unsaved people, many of them, think it's not possible to have a relationship with God. If you know what I did, if you know the way I've lived, just... I could never have a relationship with God. God could never forgive me for the things that I've done. And they just think because they lived so long in the darkness and in the guilt of their own human conscience, I can't have a relationship with God at this point. And Satan creates that doubt in the unsaved person's mind so they never put faith in Jesus Christ and receive Him as their Savior and are born again and begin a new life. Listen, Jesus shows us here by what he prays for Peter that your faith would not fail. He shows us that one of the very important components in the midst of failure is to have faith. To have faith. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you think you are the biggest failure on the planet. That's fine, you may think that about yourself. But don't you lose faith that you have failed so much that there's not a God in heaven who loves you that despite all your failures says, I've forgiven all that. And I want to forgive all that. And I will welcome you as much as I would welcome anybody else if you would just turn and put your faith and your trust in me. And if you're here this morning as a believer and, and you have failed, listen, as you fail, you got to continue to believe. Believe the truths of God's word. Believe that Jesus still loves you. Believe that Jesus was aware you were going to stumble and believe that Jesus is ready to welcome you back if you just confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. So important in times of failure that we continue to have faith. And Jesus recognized this and because he says, Peter, I'm going to pray that your faith doesn't fail. Not that you don't make a mistake again, but I'm going to pray that you continue to believe as you recover from the major failure that we know Peter was about to make look as well what Jesus also does to encourage Peter in verse 32 he says Peter I've prayed your faith won't fail and when you have returned strengthen your brethren notice that Jesus his heart in failure is always for what? restoration he doesn't say Peter if you return he says Peter when you return when you return Jesus had the heart of restoration from the beginning and he was fully confident and to me this again astonished me he was fully confident that though Peter was going to deny him and we know he does three times miserably that though he was going to fail miserably Peter heard Jesus tell him Peter I have full confidence you're going to humbly repent you're going to be broken and Peter you're going to come back I know you will you know, Philippians 1 tells us that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And Jesus is so confident. Peter, I know you're going to about to really make some severe mistakes, but Peter, I am fully confident that you'll return to me ultimately. And Peter, when you come back and you have right relationship with me despite your mistake, I want you to use that mistake and use it for a good purpose. Man, I look at the words of Jesus here and I think, what a gracious encouragement Jesus gives to a man who is on the course of major failure. It, Jesus sees what he's about to do and he knows it's wrong. But he speaks a tremendous amount of encouragement into Peter's life. And I look at this and I think for myself, perhaps, what a great model for us when we talk to people at times who maybe like Jesus, we can tell they're, they're on the pathway to some major problems and mistakes. And, you know, sometimes you're talking to somebody and you can tell they are bent on heading the wrong direction. And maybe they're really even hardened about it. And you can see the road you're headed on, that is going to be a major mess. You're going to make some really bad choices. And, and, And you can see they're on their way to a failure. And you warn them about it, as we should. I think we should warn people when we see them on the way to failure. But people have free will. And boy, if there's one thing that I have learned over years and years of ministry and a whole lot of counseling, I can teach the Word of God and tell the truth to people. I sit with people quite regularly and people share things with me and you give counsel. But the reality is I know as soon as they get up and they walk out of my office, they're going to do what they want and sometimes you can see people on the path of failure you can warn them look this is what's going to happen if you go down that path I I wish you wouldn't but how amazing what if when we saw people still heading down a path of failure and we knew they were going to really crash and burn if we said to them but hey you know what I want you to know something I want you to know I'm going to be praying for you and I'm going to be praying for your relationship with the Lord and you know what I believe you're going to come back I believe you'll come back I know you'll come back to the Lord and I'm praying for when. and who knows if that graciousness and that encouragement even on the path of failure may be the thing God keeps in their heart and mind when they crash and burn and they're miserable like the prodigal son in the pig slop that makes them realize because of what you said to them you know what maybe I should go back and I can go back And maybe you become the catalyst to help them as they seek to return to the Lord because they know that you've been praying and believing that they were going to come back. What an amazing thing Jesus does. He says, Peter, when you've returned, strengthen your brethren. I like that. Peter, when you return, I want you to use this failure in a productive way. I'm not only going to restore you, Peter, but he says, I want to restore your usability. And we know in John 21, that's exactly what Jesus does with Peter. He restores him back into service. After a time of major failure in due time, Jesus reinstates Peter. And after a process of brokenness and humility and restoration, quite honestly, when you look at Peter's life and his ministry, I think it's fair to say that Peter, on the backside of his failure, was more efficient and more useful of a vessel for the Lord than he was on the front side of his failure. Because when Peter went through the mistakes that he did and then the process of repentance and brokenness and ultimate restoration, Peter, as a result of that process, he was humbled. He didn't have quite as big of a view of himself. And there was just a measure of humility that came into his life. He didn't have quite the self-confidence that he did before. The Lord had kind of knocked a little bit of the wind out of his sails. Peter was a lot more appreciative personally of Jesus' death on his behalf and he had a real appreciation for the personal work of the Lord in his own life, Peter became a lot more compassionate. He became a lot more tender towards other people and more sensitive and understanding. He became more gentle and he became a lot more dependent upon the Lord personally. And over the long haul, Peter became quite a bit more useful as you look at the rest of his life and his ultimate ministry. And listen, this morning, please know, I think Jesus wants you to know He redeems our failures. He can redeem our failures. If we humble ourselves, repent, and come to Him brokenly, He can ultimately, through a process of time, take those big major mistakes and He can turn them around and redeem them and make you more usable. I don't know if He'll use you the same way, but He can make you more usable on the other side because He'll do some heart work. And some heart surgery. And ministry comes from here. From the heart. And Peter becomes a very effective individual down the road. I love Peter. I'm praying for you. And when you come back, I know you will, he says. I want you to strengthen your brethren. Well, again, at this point, Peter, prior to the failure, he's rather self-confident. He doesn't like this. So he says, Lord, I'm ready to go to death with you. He says, I'm ready to go with you to prison End to death. So Peter passionately kind of refutes this thought and, and a sense of strong dedication. And I think that Peter was probably very sincere. Peter loved the Lord. And I think Peter wanted to be that dedicated. I think his hard intention is that he wanted to be that committed to Jesus and dedicated. Peter's Achilles, we know, however, was self-confidence. And he had a little too high of an estimation of himself as a man and his own personal ability. And like most all of us, if we'd be honest, Peter just needed a little wind knocked out of his sails. And he needed to kind of be brought into balance of the reality of who he really was as a man. And I found in my own life and in watching and witnessing the things in the lives of others, sometimes the only thing that can do that for a person is a little personal failure. You ever notice how the older we get in life, just kind of humility kind of naturally comes along with that? Why? Because you have more time to fail. <laughs> you mess up more. And, you know, and, and it just it's amazing. And, and all of it, we just kind of need sometimes to just kind of live out life a little bit. And sometimes the only thing that really can do that work in our life is just some personal failure to kind of take us back to that place because here we are, we're always scoffing at everybody else for making mistakes and and we're critical and we have our self-righteous nose turned up and then one day the Lord kind of pulls back a little bit and he lets Satan have a little access and temptation in our life and what happens? God lets the carpet slip right out from under our feet and BAM! And then all of a sudden we have a little reality check and a little humility comes into our life as God ultimately did here with Peter as well. Jesus says to him, verse 34, as he's making this great boast, Peter, I tell you, the rooster shall not crow this day, Peter, this same day, before you're going to deny me not just once but three times that you know me. So Jesus says to Peter, revealing the reality that though he had a strong amount of personal desire to be so committed, and I think, Peter, that's noble. I appreciate you say that you'd die for me. That's really noble. But, Peter, that's not very realistic. Because before the day's over, in fact, if you want me to be honest with you, (laughs) before the day's over, Peter, not once, three times, you're going to deny that you even know me. And we know, of course, this is exactly what takes place. And Peter, again... By nature, he was bold. This was one of those kind of guys, his personality. He was bold. He was outspoken. But in the very area of his own strength was where he ultimately blew it. Reminding us, number one, everybody has the capacity to fail. And number two, a lot of times, the area where we fail in is the area of our greatest strength. Because where we have strengths, we don't use to keep our guard up. And then that's where the sucker punch comes and the enemy takes us down because we didn't have our guard up because we thought we stood and lo and behold there we turned around and fell as well. Listen, important to remember, we can all relate to Peter because we all have the ability to deny the Lord. We've done it in the past. We have the capacity to do it today and to do it tomorrow. We deny him at times by things that we say that we shouldn't say. We deny the Lord by the way that we act sometimes, our behavior. And perhaps some of you have even walked Peter's road quite personally. By that I mean maybe you have had a major failure in your life. Maybe like Peter. Maybe you've, you've really walked the road of having a major failure in your life. And you know the bitterness of what that's like. Listen... Peter's life is an example in the scriptures that there is hope beyond failure. That there is usability after error. The truth is everyone fails. The important thing is is just how do you respond to failure? How do you respond to failure? Can I suggest respond by looking at Jesus' words? He says, look, be aware. Satan's going to want to sift you. You failed. And he's going to want to sift you now. He's going to want to continue to shake every last thing out of your life. But Jesus would say to you, but I knew you were going to do that. And I was praying for you before you even did it so that when you went through it, you wouldn't lose faith. Don't lose faith. In fact, he says, I want you to return to me. Come back to me. I love you. I paid for that on the cross too. I love you. Return to me. And not only do I want you to return to me, Jesus would say, but I want to ultimately take this, heal you, restore you, in time turn around and let you use that mistake to help other people, to strengthen other people who fail, to encourage other people that there's hope beyond failure, there's usability after error. And the Lord wants to redeem those things in all of our lives. And Father, we thank you for that great assurance that you do do that in each and every one of our lives in different ways. Lord, thank you for inserting this portion of Scripture into the Bible. Lord, I I couldn't think there'd be a person in this room who wouldn't relate to what it means at times to fail, to feel that sense of guilt for a mistake or regret for a thing that we've done. And Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would use these things to minister to us and to help us to continue to have your attitude and to navigate the biggest mistakes in the wisest ways because of what you've shown us in your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.